Early this year, Ilya and I sat down with Marika Kalfas, CEO of NSW Ports. This discussion predated the coronavirus pandemic, so you won't hear Marika discuss the major impact COVID-19 is having on our freight and supply chains. As those of you who have already listened to our recent podcast with Tony Shepard would know, we will also be bringing you new content on the impact of COVID-19 on the infrastructure sector, both through this podcast and also through Infrastructure Partnerships Australia's other platforms. On that note, Marika Kalfas has been with NSW Ports in a number of senior roles since the early 2000s and has seen firsthand the port evolve from a government department to a corporate identity to a private enterprise. We discuss Marika's insights on that evolution, current efforts to improve supply chain efficiency and the future of ports. It was a great chat, so here it is. Marika Kalfas, welcome to Inside Infrastructure. Thank you very much for joining us. Maybe you could tell our listeners who you are and what you do. Sure. Thanks, Adrian. Thanks, Ilya, for having me here today. Uh, I'm the CEO of NSW Ports. NSW Ports is the private sector port manager, and we manage Port Botany and Port Kembla in New South Wales, as well as two rail intermodal terminals at Enfield and Cooks River. So essentially uh, managing port and rail terminal infrastructure. Why NSW ports, not New South Wales ports? Well, we're not government, so we can't use New South Wales. So really? it's actually NSW. Our shareholders are uh, 80% Australian superannuation investment funds and 20% is Torreed, which is the Abu Dhabi sovereign oh, wh- Which fund. Australian super funds? Well, it's IFM investors as well as co-investors of CBUS, Hester, Host Plus and Australian Super and QSuper. So essentially one in four Australians have an interest in how well the assets we manage perform. How long have you been at uh, NSW Ports? Well, I've been with NSW Ports for the six years that the organisation's been in existence, coming up to seven years this year. And you, you, uh, you're the only CEO that NSW Ports has had? There was a CEO before? Yeah, there was a, initially there was a managing director when right. it was first started in May 2013. Then there was a, an inaugural CEO who was there for 18 months. And then I've been the, the second CEO and been in the role for about four years now. The New South Wales government's long-term leasing and infrastructure asset recycling program. Back in May 2013, the uh, the concessions for the ports and the intermodal terminals were awarded to that consortia, which is NSW Ports. But you were with the what was Sydney Ports, the the, the entity before for a lot longer. Yeah, so I was with Sydney Ports Corporation, the state-owned corporation. Uh, Some of the assets of that corporation ended up being part of the package of infrastructure that became NSW Ports. And I've been in the port sector for about uh, 19 years now, so since 2001. Sorry, just when you called me earlier to to come up here, it it comes up Marika Kalfa, Sydney Ports on my phone. (laughs) Yeah, I've been in the industry for a fair while, I think. I've got the contact details from way back when. Yeah. How did you come into the ports sector? Is it, was it, has it always been an interest? Well, uh, I sort of fell into the sector, actually. I, I probably, like many people in the, in the state, didn't really have an appreciation for ports or what ports did. So I have an environmental engineering degree okay. by qualification. And my first uh, role outside of undergraduate roles was with an engineering consulting firm called Sinclair Knight Mertz. Mm-hmm. It was Australia's, I think, largest at the time, multidisciplinary engineering consulting firm. And uh, I was working there in the water resources section. So doing things around stormwater, estuaries, water cycle management, those types of things, and had a, a really good and varied career in there. 
And then, um, interestingly, my husband was at the table one uh, weekend flipping through the paper and he saw a role at Sydney Ports Corporation and said, uh, why don't you apply for this? And I looked at the role and I said, that's not my skill set at all. And he said, oh, well, it doesn't matter, just apply. <laughs> and I was very happy with Sinclair Knight. I had no reason to, to go um, and move to somewhere else. But I thought, oh, well, let's put my CV together and give it a go. And I applied and I was unsuccessful for the role okay. uh, because it didn't match my skill set. But uh, the the executive... You've, had, you've been trying to sort of teach them a lesson ever since? Is that the... <laughs> no, they were spot on. It wasn't my skill set. I, I knew that. The executive there uh, at the time, he saw my CV and, and he thought that maybe they could uh, create a role for my right. skills. So they did. They ultimately, after six months of discussion, created a port planning role and I moved into that. Wow. Yeah. And so you, you said that um, you didn't know much about ports before, mm. you know, like most people. I think that's fair. Like it's a, it's a f- sort of a kind of hidden part of the infrastructure sector. We only really hear about it when it's going wrong. Um, maybe you could just paint a picture of what the structure of the ports and logistics space is in New South Wales and maybe the, the bits of it that you own, the bits you don't and kind of how it all works. You know, in, 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 in two minutes or whatever. Kind of yeah. like an org chart. Yeah. Because there's, like there's a lot of entities involved and it kind of gets confusing who, which, which one's responsible for what and which one owns what, et cetera, et cetera, at yeah. least in New South Wales. Oh, look, it, it's, it's a very um, fragmented system, our supply chain. Mm. So there's lots of different organisations and lots of different parties throughout what we call the supply chain. And it takes a very long time to work out all the pieces of, of the puzzle. So, um, yeah, we wouldn't be able to do it justice in, in two minutes. But fundamentally, at the port end, which is the end that we manage, you've got port land and port infrastructure. And, and on that infrastructure, there are stevedoring companies and they generally handle the cargo on and off the ships. You've got the shipping lines as well who have the cargo on board the ships and they transport the cargo from, be it from overseas to Australia or from Australia exporting back overseas. So that's the port side. Then at the steamadoring terminal, trucks and trains take the cargo mm. to and from the port. So then you've got multiple companies through those tr- rail and truck supply chains and then they deliver them to it can be warehouses it can be an actual end customer who then uh, receives the goods and uses the goods for their purposes I mean in two seconds that's a that's a, a simplification of the supply chain but there are many parties in between you've got customs you've got uh, quarantine or biosecurity you've got freight forwarders as well so there's a whole range of uh, different parties in what is quite a complex system each party plays their role in those supply chains now you've got some supply chains in the country and if you take mining cha- supply chains for example they're quite vertically integrated so they will do everything from the mine through to actually mm. the port end and in our non-mining supply chains such as the ones that we have at, at NSW ports where we have containers we have fuel gas uh, grain you know cars it's a whole range across our two port portfolios we don't have that same level of vertical integration you actually have a very fragmented supply chain so in sydney there are 200 trucking operators why is that why is it not more integrated like it is in other states supply chains or other states yeah other states have a sim have a similar level of of um fragmentation although probably not to the same degree in the trucking space the trucking space i think sydney has, but there are also ports in Australia that are also stevedores. 
right? Yeah, there are. Uh, not too many. I think um, Adelaide, yeah. so Flinders Ports, and I suspect that's a, a historical mm. piece, whereas in, in Sydney the way it worked was that it was uh, let out as concessions yeah. to stevedores that tend to operate around the country. So mm. we have three stevedores at Port Botany uh, for containers. We have uh, DP World, which have... Uh, uh, operations across the country, Patrick's as well, and DP World's International. Patrick's very much uh, Australian. And we also have Hutchison, and Hutchison is the third operator. Their new new entrant, they commenced in 2013, and they have operations in Sydney and Brisbane. So the model with them is you're a landlord, they take possession of the leased land and do what they do. Yeah, and they load the cargo onto and off the ships. So the... the um Ports transaction, the, the privatisation was relatively recent, and it, uh, I think, at the time was widely um, reported as a, as, a, as a big success for New South Wales, and it didn't didn't really attract anywhere near as much um, negative sentiment in the public and in the media as some of the other uh, privatisations. What do you think was was different about the Ports transaction than uh, some of the other some of the other experiences of other of New South Wales and other jurisdictions as well. Look, I, I probably can't comment on w- what the reaction was around ports versus others, other um, infrastructure that's been uh, privatised in the past. But what I would say is I think ports, coming back to an earlier point, I think ports are not well understood or yep. well known by the community yep. and there may have been some connection there. So people don't really appreciate how their goods end up on the, the shelves in the retail stores, how they end up at you know, Bunnings or in their supermarket or in other retailers, they don't really appreciate how goods move around the country. They know trucks are there. Yeah. They know trains are there. But how do they come in and out of the it's country? It's kind of a double-edged sword, though, isn't it? Because on the one hand, it means you can get a long-term lease away relatively unscathed, but it also means that people don't understand that a certain portion of something they buy from Bunnings is encapsulated in the, the cost to get it to Bunnings or to JB Hi-Fi mm. or wherever, and if that's inefficient, the cost is higher. So, that, you know, what what you pay at the at the checkout at Woolies or ever is in part driven by the efficiency or otherwise of the fragmented supply chains you're talking about. Yeah, exactly right. So, where we've got inefficiencies in that supply chain, you it, it ultimately translates to the higher cost of goods that the consumers are purchasing. Or it translates to a higher cost for our exporters, and they're operating in a global in a global marketplace. So it is really important that that overall supply chain for for receiving and delivering of goods is as efficient as we can make it, because it hits all of our pockets at the end of the day. So I guess that's almost your incentive is to 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 keep to keep it that efficient is to make sure it stays out of a well the best function of a port is if nobody knows that it's uh, that it's doing a bad job that's the that's the <laughs> great outcome i think <laughs> well, that way well i probably wouldn't put it that way because the ports themselves are not well known and understood that's right but people see trucks and they see trains yeah. and they see the impact of that when they're on the roads and so they they generally don't have a they're not well disposed to having trucks on the roads next to their next to their cars yeah. and unless they actually understand why those trucks are on the right. roads then they're not going to have an appreciation for why they have to be there moving the goods around mm-hmm. so at the the physical port end so for example at port botany you know, we've got we're handling 2.6 million TUs a TU is a 20 foot container uh, we've got capacity to handle upwards of 7 million 
TUs. What will ultimately limit the capacity of Port Botany is not the port land, it's not the port infrastructure, it's not our berths and our channels. It's ultimately the road and rail connections so that, to a, and from the port. That's an interesting point that I want to get. I do want to. I do want to get to the land side infrastructure and 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 how that's affecting your operations. But so that is an explosion of growth what you're describing from 2.6 to 7. I think we've seen estimates. I don't know if they're still up to date, but INSW estimates that that 7 million figure is potentially going to be hit by 2031 was was one of the one of the one of the papers released. Is that That'd be pretty key. 2031. Absolutely. Is, yeah. Well, 7 million is 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 whether it's 2031 or any any uh, in, any later is still in a, a huge explosion in in uh, throughput. What have you uh, have you got? You're saying you've got the capacity today to handle that. How have you uh, how, how have you managed to achieve that? That's a really big big increase in in capacity. Yeah, well, the capacity was expanded back in uh, 2008. Was when construction started to expand Port Botany mm-hmm. to have a third stevedoring terminal, and that's been a long term term plan. And it's always important to stay ahead of capacity. But it wasn't really driven by capacity. It was driven by competitive pressures, right? Or the, the desire to have a third operator, rather, and you, you build these things, they're they're lumpy by definition. You build a whole terminal, not you, know, you don't build them incrementally. Yeah, I think I think there was multiple parts. It had already been part of a longer term plan originally when Port Botany was planned to be built. It was going to be probably twice the size that it is mm. today. They only built the first half. Then, yes, it was about desiring to get a third operator to bring in competition to help improve productivity and reduce costs. And I think it's fair to say that productivity has increased quite substantially. Mm -hmm. And so what the third terminal has done is bring online additional capacity. Mm -hmm. Now, the terminals themselves and the operating models of those terminals right now can't handle 7 million TUs. But the land footprint, the berth infrastructure, the shipping channel... That can all handle seven million plus, and TVs. so they're ready to upgrade their um, capacity when they need to. Is that is that what you're? Well, what we're saying is that you can right. handle that volume through investments yep. in operational things as well as investments I'm in infrastructure. Nerd out. So that that so if you took the most efficient port operations in the world and applied that model to their t- that's how you would increase the correct so that's how you calculate the seven million number yeah and and to be honest when the port was originally built there was no way they thought those terminals would ever handle that type of volume yeah. but with technology and with improvements in productivity you can get more out of the existing infrastructure right. and that's really the objective get the most you can out of the existing infrastructure so that um that's uh again that's a, that that's a very substantial increase in in capacity. I think seven million is 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 not far away from the total for all of Australia today. Mm-hmm. Um, is that because uh, there's a lot of debate going on about uh, potentially other ports in in New South Wales? Are you confident that um, all the growth that's expected in New South Wales can be handled within within the Port Botany contained terminals? Well, in terms of growth in New South Wales, so the, the issue around capacity is that's the capacity that you've got that yeah. you can work with. What's happening with demand? Yeah. And so demand is is growing, but at a slower rate than it has done in the past. And in fact, this year, actually, demand has so far, year to date, actually declined. Really? So, so I'm always intrigued by this because you're at the, sorry, we're going to come back to your question, but you're at the coalface of the economy to some extent because stuff coming in and out of the country is... A pretty good indicator of how the economy is. Mm. So you're saying it's 
down a wee bit. It is down this year. And, um, this year, so, but we're 2020, so we're only a few days in. Uh, no, this oh, uh, financial, financial year exactly. from yeah, July yeah. of 2019. Yeah, okay. So we are down uh, from July of 2019. And, and what I would say is from Port Botany perspective, year on year since the port commenced operations, which was only 40 years ago, but mm. it's still a fair, a fair trend, every single year there has been growth. Bar one, which was the year after the Olympics, where there was a slight decline. I think but it was like negative. It was a high yeah. point. It declined like 0.1 or 0.3%. Yeah. And every year since, it, it has continued to grow. Uh, this year, we're seeing a negative. Now, whether that continues for the remainder of the five months of the year remains to be seen, I suspect, given and, what's and, going and on. do you know well. what it is you've seen less of in terms of like actual goods, what's in the containers. Yeah, yeah, we've got a bit of a, a, a perfect storm at the moment. So we've got less exports in agriculture and that was happening because of the drought. Mm-hmm. So so uh, grains, uh, ex- grain is exported in containers as well as in bulk and the grain exports have, have been almost non-existent in, in both bulk and, uh, right. in, and in containers. Cotton is another one. So the agricultural exports have been hit quite hard by the drought. On the flip side, on the imports, we're also seeing a decline in the import containers. And uh, it's in different areas, but some of the key areas are in those products that are used to furnish uh, dwellings, you know, okay. be that tiles, flooring, those sorts of things, bathroom fit-outs. So we're seeing that home construction, renovation, apartment building, that area there which it says declined a little, uh, mm. that's flowing through in less imports coming in. It's probably worth saying though that uh, explaining the role of imports versus exports yeah. for, the, for the market in New South Wales, it is different in, in different parts of the world and it's yeah. different in different parts of the country. But New South Wales is an import dominant port for mm-hmm. containers. And what that means is that we import a lot more in containers than we export. It's actually something we wanted to ask you about a little later, but but might as well see it now. What, what proportion of, uh, I guess, what proportion of containers are, are going out of your, your port empty? Yeah. So 60% of okay. all containers go out empty, six so in every 10. It's our, Air is our biggest export, <laughs> yes. And that's where we have that imbalance. And that also creates issues in the supply chain yeah. around empty containers and inefficiencies in the p- supply chain. So a really a really good opportunity to improve productivity in the state is to try and find a purpose for the empty containers in terms of repurposing them for exports. Do you think the the port plays a role? It ha- it, it, and it's because it's not obviously the port's role fundamentally is containers coming in, containers coming out, and making sure that they can. But do you think that the port has some kind of or some kind of incentive could be offered through the port to encourage more exports? Because that's a lot of it's a lot of air being shipped literally. Um, around the world. What, what do you think the port can do about that? Well, I think the port's role in that is is relatively limited because yeah. the costs in terms of port costs are actually quite small okay. in the overall supply chain. So it doesn't mean we can't talk to people who've got great ideas for exporting. But as our manufacturing base has declined, so too have our full exports. Yeah. Do, do, you, um, do you get paid the same for a box that's got stuff in it versus... One which hasn't. No, we get paid a lot less for an empty box than yeah. we do for a full. Yeah. So it's it's in our own interest yeah. to in- encourage yeah. full exports, um, and it's in the supply chain's interest to get more full exports as well. So if we look at the imports, uh, for every, so for every ten boxes we import full, only four of them go out exported mm. full. What's in those boxes that are coming in as basically everything in our 
in our, in our day-to-day lives that we use, yeah. not not everything. We did we, we looked at analysis um, in a in a Sydney household, and forty two percent of all of the items in your household, including food and beverage, will have come there via a container through Port Botany. We're talking about the bathroom fittings, the white goods, the electrical goods, the shoes you're wearing, the clothes you're wearing. If it's not made in Australia, it will likely have come in through a container at Port Botany. Sorry, so is that is anything you're saying uh, the rest is manufactured here or the rest is or the rest is potentially has potentially come through another port i uh, know the rest will either have been manufactured here or grown here for okay. example yep. or it could have come via an airplane oh, right. rather okay. than through the port yep. not so much that it's coming through other ports actually the imports into new south wales tend to have a bigger penetration into other states oh, right. than than vice versa if you ever get like the, you didn't get tracking from UPS or whatever. Sometimes you can see where it's coming and go. I'm always surprised if you look at them that, that sometimes they can come into Melbourne and then be moved on truck into Western Sydney and then distribute. Like it, it's kind of like a. It's not necessarily what you'd think is the intuitively simplest way to get it to you as the consumer. Not that most people look at it because they're not nerds, but so that's probably a. a, a enough of a segue for to to go actually backwards to something that you i think alluded to a little earlier which is the the land side infrastructure and the supply chain mm. that serves the port um so if the port itself as you mentioned is current in 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 your forecast more than capable of handling growth in demand where are where are the pinch points would you say where are the bottlenecks that are preventing uh, you know further further capacity um, or further, further throughput for the port. Are they on the land side and where are they there? Well, I don't think any of the land side infrastructure is preventing throughput through the port. The okay. throughput is generally governed by demand. Yep. And that demand is, in the sense of containers, it's principally driven by the economy of the state but also population growth and what consumer trends are and consumer demand. Uh, and housing development and all of those things. So let, let me rephrase. I guess where, where are the, where are the pinch points that are making it less efficient yeah. or more, more expensive than it should be? The reality is that that the general Sydney road congestion okay. is is a challenge in many different segments. It's not just a challenge for the port supply chains, but then it's a challenge for tradespeople and it's yeah. a challenge for just distributing goods once they're actually yeah. unpacked at a warehouse. Uh, so what we are focused on as well is driving more of that movement to and from the port on rail mm-hmm. and getting more containers on rail so that they clear the port precinct and get out to their end destination, to a closer point to their end destination without having to go on road for for some of that distance. And you've been quite outspoken on on the, the need for more for more rail um, to and from the to and from the port. Um, has that What's the status of of those uh, investments and upgrades? It's been there's been some really good work that's happened over many decades, or probably since um, the early two thousands, essentially, to try to since grow. Since you entered the sector, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't think you can attribute it to me. I don't know. Uh, but but certainly in recent times, as NSW ports, we've been we have been really strong on trying to get the message out that we should be encouraging growth of rail and yeah. and that is about infrastructure capability and reliability but it is again it's a, it's a whole lot of segments you have to have the capacity at the port you have to have the capacity on the rail line and you have to have somewhere for the goods to go the the intermodal terminals mm-hmm. and Don't each you own Enfield we do yeah. we own uh, Enfield and Cooks River yeah. and then there are other companies that own other 
intermodal terminals. You've got Moore Bank, which has recently opened, which is fantastic. These things take time. Mm -hmm. And Enfield was previously owned by Sydney Ports Corporation from early 2000s or a bit before that. And it really didn't get operational in a, in, a, in a strong way until 2018. So these things take time. More bank was touted, I think, before even 2004 when the Commonwealth actually said, yes, it could be used for an intermodal and it's only just commenced operations. But we're getting really good traction now with intermodals that are um, developing and, and growing. The federal government has committed funding to finish the duplication of what is a dedicated freight rail line connecting Port Botany all the way out to Moorbank mm-hmm. via Cooks River, Enfield um, as well. And at the port end, we're uh, partnering with the stevedoring terminals to ensure they can deliver 1 million TU capacity on each of the three stevedoring terminals so that we can ultimately have a 3 million TU rail capacity at the port end, which we'll, we're keen to see matched with intermodal terminal capacity. Can I ask you question in a different way, which is if... So, say demand grows um, in line with expectations. What what's going to be the first thing that constrains it from a supply perspective if no action is taken to improve capacity? So, I would say that the the current um, key bottleneck in, in terms of infrastructure efficiency would be the intersection very close to the port, which is at General Homes Drive, Forshaw Road. And that is the the missing piece connecting to the Sydney Gateway Road um, project, mm. which connects into then the M5 and the M4. And there's a kind of a convergence of trucks and cars. So cars going to the airport and trucks coming from the port. Exactly. Yeah. And and in peak hours, that is where, where the key um, the key congestion is currently occurring. Uh, that is well known, and the majority of that is actually driven by non-port trucks. Mm. So the the port trucks on Forshaw Road, Forshaw Road's the key road that was actually built when the port was built to service the port. During peak hour, only fourteen percent of the vehicles on that road are actually port trucks. Mm-hmm. The rest are commuter vehicles, other cars, um, and and also trucks that are servicing the uh, residential areas in yeah. in the eastern, southeastern suburbs. Yeah. So is the, is the issue there a capacity issue or a demand management one? As in, would you, I know there's a, a pretty famous uh, example in, I think it's LA, at the port in LA, where they've um, had a, they've got a lot of price incentives to encourage trucks to go out of peak hour. You're not talking um, about road user charging, are you? <laughs> well, no, 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 it's not a road user charging one. But okay. is are there are there other incentives that can be offered to to resolve that issue, or does it just need a hell of a lot more lanes? I think that with peak hour in Sydney expanding in terms of the times of day, demand management is not the only solution. Right. Our port trucks tend to be quite consistent across the day okay. and less so in the weekends. And so there's opportunities to leverage more on the weekends, but the port is open 24-7. The challenge with that and truck access in that tw- in the, on the weekend period is that often the receival sites aren't open. Mm-hmm. And similarly in the nighttime periods, often the receival sites aren't open. So many of the or, big... Or then the local council's got a regulation which says you can't move trucks at... 2 a.m. Exactly. And they may not be open because they're not allowed to open due to the planning conditions or you can't get trucks to to that location. And so quite uh, the bigger trucking companies actually have to stage their containers before they deliver them. So they take them out of the port in the off-peak hours Mm -hmm. or the weekends, night times, stage them at their depots, and then they'll distribute them 
during the day. Now, obviously, there's there's inefficiencies in that as well with double handling. Mm-hmm. So these are some of the things that are, are happening because of because of the way in which road congestion in Sydney right. um, occurs. In the case of that particular intersection I'm referring to, that is a capacity issue that will need to be addressed and is certainly well known that it needs to be addressed. It will benefit from the Sydney Gateway. That's where it was going to be my next question. There's obviously a mountain of, of new infrastructure that is opening in the sort of medium term or in, and some of it in the short term. Will that... Uh, will that go a, a pretty long way towards addressing the issues you're describing or is there still a lot more work that needs to be done? I don't think we'll really know until it opens. It will. It, it's intended to benefit uh, the intersection by virtue of more vehicles and more trucks funnelling away from that intersection mm-hmm. and away from heading onto the M5 East. So in theory, it should have some easing of the congestion there, but I think that's just an easing of something that's already over capacity right. anyway, and it may only be a short-term easing. Okay. Who should pay for it? And I'm going to, before you answer that question, um, the airport benefits or passengers to the airport benefit because they get better flow through to the airport, and uh, as does freight and what have you to the airport. Your stevedores, or, or at least the the supply chain benefits, but by extension, NSW ports benefits because there's more capacity through to the port. So kind of logic suggests maybe that you and the airport should be paying for those sorts of upgrades. I think you could look at it in in a number of ways. So as I was saying, the port truck contribution is 14%. Once it gets onto General Homes Drive, it drops down to 5%. So the you know, port trucks you obviously multiply by a number like four for example and and say well that's equivalent to four cars mm-hmm. so it's more than five percent in in what it feels like for, for mm. drivers on the road but they're relatively given the significance of the port to the economy it's a relatively small component yeah. of what is overall background traffic so i think you could look at it in in multiple ways and say that ultimately the consumer is going to pay because the consumer pays for cost inefficiencies in the supply chain. I guess what you're saying is that uh, the port maybe could pay, but only if a whole bunch of other road users were paying (laughs) for that road as well. I don't know, every every conversation we've had so far has actually included a road use charging component (laughs) by accident, but they all lead in in that direction. But it actually is an important point that there's there's a lot of, there's a lot more users than just the port of those roads. Well, so it leads me on to... you mentioned like the the size of the economy, but Sydney's I don't want to say it's unique, but it's special in the sense that it has got two major economic nodes, the airport and the port in the same precinct. Mm. I presume there are benefits to that, but there's also converging congestion of, of people trying people and goods trying to get to and from those places that you're talking about a particular intersection, which is a convergence point of, of those two streams of traffic that aren't necessarily sort of complementary in terms of the the time at which they occur. Plus, you've got commuters going through there and other things. Um, but the extension of the question is, if you've got those two big, you know, those two big actors in the Australian economy and there's a, um, a constraining part of the network on both of them, there's a pretty direct incentive for you guys to say, well, actually, we'll step up and unclog that. 
Yeah, but then you've also got to say, what has been the strategic planning around road infrastructure and public transport infrastructure in the precinct that we operate? Mm. And this has been the ongoing challenge and part of the challenge of community and decision makers not really being aware of the role of ports is that decisions are made without actually factoring in what are the consequences of those decisions. So if you look at the, the, the area, the broader precinct around which the port and the airport exist, we look at some of the areas on what I'll call southeast or eastern suburbs of Sydney. There's been huge residential intensification there. Mm. There's been the Little Bay Hospital area, which has now got apartment blocks next to the East Gardens, Westfield. There's thousands of apartments being built. And if you, if you look at all of that, intensification of residential development and you say what major road or public transport infrastructure has been built to service that I can't point to anything in particular Mm. so all of that development is funneling along the same roads so by extension you've got the same argument with developers you know who should be paying for the transport connectivity that connects these major areas of residential densification. And we're seeing that all around the port, that what were single dwelling, low rise houses are now multi-storey apartment blocks. And that has consequences for a lot of things, including land use, as well as the conditions that are placed on operations. Mm. And to the point where we can get noise complaints now from areas that we'd never got noise complaints before, because these high rise developments mean that the noise is traveling from the port upwards and hitting those upper stories and you can get it two kilometers away it's an interesting Mm. point uh, that also kind of reflects how uniquely positioned the port is uh to the in in the city um relative to some other ports around australia and around the world and I think that that probably has advantages and also obviously the, the, the costs that you're describing now where, you know, residential areas don't appreciate having a, trucks driving around. But what, what are the advantages though? Because I've read a thing that something like uh, some very high percentage of traffic f- through the port actually is just delivered within a 50 kilometre radius. So can you, can you talk through what it does to the port from a positive sense of being so close to the city? Well, I'll talk to the, the the stats around where boxes are being delivered, the imports, and then I might just do a little piece around that issue of where ports are located yeah. uh, globally as well. So 80% of all of the import containers through Port Botany travel no further than 40 kilometres from the port and 90% travel no further than 50 kilometres from do, the port. When you say that, do you mean uh, to the end destination or, or is, is, a, is an intermodal terminal included in that to the end point of where the container is being delivered right okay not the goods in the container because then they're unpacked and they will be distributed elsewhere but the actual container itself it's end destination and that makes sense because a lot of the warehousing has shifted from the inner city regions out to eastern creek and that western sydney area and that is where the containers are predominantly going and the forecasts are as population grows and we have the sydney metropolitan plan which shows three cities three million people in western sydney and you look at the industrial land use areas that that will be that will continue and the shift will be west and southwest Mm -hmm. so you'll have proportionally more volume going to the west and the southwest but still within that 40 50 kilometer radius and that's what makes port botany quite an efficient location for a port you have a shorter journey time than if you were trucking hundreds of kilometers and that's where the efficiencies come in so on balance 
that what because the issue you were describing before where the because it, it it makes you know I, I can see your concerns around residential areas or near near the port but ultimately they are still close to the city so there's a lot of benefit as well so on balance would you say the the costs of being close to the city are outweighed by the benefits of being you know having shorter shorter travel times to the ultimate destination the the benefits of being closer to your destination yes. are are substantial okay Ultimately, if even if you were further away, at some point you've got to come through that exactly. Sydney network because yeah. you've got to come back to the location where the containers are being delivered yeah. and they're going to continue to be in the industrial areas in that precinct. And once the goods are unpacked, they're then distributed all over Sydney. Yeah. One of the, the challenges has been that as the land pricing in the city area or the botany area has become higher and it's been subdivided into small parcels of land, it's no longer suitable for those logistics uses. Mm -hmm. The consequence is you actually have to take the boxes out west to where you do have large parcels of land. I I, I want to talk about that as well, but it's an interesting thing that's happening in other countries. It doesn't really happen here, but there is a... Other places have had this densification a a whole lot earlier than Sydney and they've started... I don't want to say mixed use, but at the very least, there is more uh, a more intense, but it's still industrial land use in other places. They might have multi-floor distribution centres. They might have uh, some kind of commercial activity on the same. Do, do you see any of that? Any of that happening here, or are we just heading west instead? We still have industrial land around the port. It has been declining, and one of the key challenges we've got is stopping the subdivision of that land right. into parcels that are too small for logistics uses. Yep. And because there is the ability to subdivide for industrial warehousing, it pushes the prices up and then makes the land uncompetitive for industrial logi- logistics type yep. uses. But if you look at, I mean, you go and look at ports overseas, and and it will be different in different locations, but if you take the European ports, for example, and Sydney is is sort of a little mirror on that, a lot of them started with the inner, what became the cities or the the urban areas started to develop up around them, and they've had the same pressure over time to relocate their ports further and further out, and a number of them have done that. Botany is the consequence of relocating out of Sydney Harbour. That's right. So the ports were originally in Sydney Harbour until containerisation came along, which was only 50 years ago. And then the government um, decided that it would move the port or create a port in Port Botany to handle we're, what was then the new form of, con- of handling trade. And we're, si- we're sitting on the, the former yeah, port Brangle, right now. Yeah, this is a yeah, waterfront, right? But the... Um, Auckland's having that conversation right now. Perth is kind of in the early stage mm-hmm. of that conversation about relocating out and then doing what Sydney's done and, and redeveloping that port area into, in Sydney's case, an expansion of the CBD. So I guess you just see it kind of extend over time. So, uh, sorry, I, I, I don't mean, I hope there hasn't been any insinuation that the port needs to move. I'm just wondering if the... Um, if it was, how much <laughs> would it be worth? <laughs> no, Where I, to? <laughs> the, the, it's, it's just, I, I'm, I'm trying to understand how are we handling that, uh, That because there is a, a natural conflict there. Are we handling it with um, with more intensification of land use in and around, of, of still industrial land use, but in and around the port, or are we? Because there's you know there's five five or six intermodal terminals, which is quite unique, I think, in Austra- even in just in Australia, that's unique. Um, is that our solution, more inland ports, or are we? Is there more work that can be done around the Botany area? I think to date it hasn't been handled from a planning and land use perspective particularly well. But there's been a lot of uh, advocacy on by the port 
over the last decades to actually try to raise the awareness of the implications of those decisions. Right. And we saw a really strong outcome in this Sydney Metropolitan Plan that was released by the Greater Sydney Commission where they're actually saying you need to preserve the land in the eastern suburb areas mm-hmm. and the city areas. So this land around Port Botany has actually been, the industrial land around Port Botany was actually protected under a state planning instrument back in 2005 because yeah. of the championing by the port. And so we do have a protected industrial land area and it's about managing that land area to optimise its opportunities to be connected with the port. Because we still do have a need for industrial logistics lands in the city. You've got businesses that want four-hour delivery times that have just-in-time type operations. You can't do that necessarily if you're too far west, but you can do that if you're at Botany. So you do need... Before you go, I want to play devil's advocate. So this is not my view, but there are people who have a view that... um you should just have a highest and best use approach to land and if the the price of that land's going up because there's a better use for it then fine that pushes the you know if you if if you think that the outcome of four hour delivery or whatever it is 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 valuable enough then you'll pay a higher price and you know kind of laissez-faire approach to planning Uh, how would you argue against such a position well, I would just say that what, whatever decision you make in that regard ultimately impacts on the efficiencies of the supply chains. And there is absolutely the, the correlation between inefficiency and price. And we talk about needing greater productivity in the, in the state and we talk about what's the next wave of you know, productivity improvements. And we don't really look at how do you actually improve what we already have in terms of the supply chains and making them more efficient and what is the cost benefit of doing Mm. so. The cost of congestion for freight is huge. And uh, I can't remember the stats, but I know the ALC produced it um, some years ago. But it's quite significant. And there's a, a productivity benefit to be had by actually ensuring that we don't end up with those constraints. So highest and best use is one lens it's then what are the consequences of that highest and best use. What we find at the ports is if you start to bring the urban development close to the ports, we start to get constraints put on the ports. You can't use that road. To put mm. Botany Road used to be a port throughput road. It's been cut off for port trucks. Bunurong Road has been cut off for port trucks. We are left with two access routes into and out of the port, which we protect as much as we can. It's the funny thing about land use is that highest and best use off very often is residential but once something goes residential there's no going back it's, mm. that's that's yeah, a permanent that's a permanent decision just the point i'm getting at is that in this particular case that has um that has impacts beyond just that piece of land because mm. as you say you build a high-rise apartment then you get noise complaints and yeah. therefore constraints placed on the port so the, the the urban encroachment through that lens or the port encroachment depending on your which side of the coin you're on is not just limited to change of use of exactly. this parcel of land. It's a much mm. broader impact that that kind of needs to be considered. It's just, do, just on that sorry. though, highest and best use to whom? Mm. I think is probably the the question. So highest and best use to the person who owns the land who can sell it for a residential development. But are you factoring in the externality costs of that? Are you factoring in the transport that needs to be built? in order to actually service that? Are you factoring in the impact to the freight supply chains and the cost yeah. of that? And you're not. So, so my, my follow-on question is who does it best? Who, If you look around the world and, and you would have very closely looked at lots of these ports and cities and what's the best operating model, who should we 
be aspiring to be like? I'm very cautious in trying to say that we should follow any one particular model. And I say that because our um, location and our trade and our marketplace is very different. There is nowhere around the world where they would do short haul rail. Mm. And short haul is 18 kilometres like Enfield and 40, 50 kilometres like Moorbank. They don't do that. And they don't do that because they don't have the same distribution that we do, 80% of containers within 40 kilometres of the port. They don't have the import-export imbalance that we have. So I'm a bit cautious about using international comparators. What I would say, though, is there are some um, ports like some of the European ports, you take Rotterdam, where they have 30 to 50-year strategies Mm. around the ports that they, they broadly lock in and then they develop with that purpose in mind. And I think that's where there's real opportunity is making sure that you've got that long-term vision for the ports and the freight supply chains that get locked in. And that's part of the you know national freight and supply chain strategy, but very much it's part of state um, strategies as well because these are state infrastructure uh, for, for the benefit of the people so, of the state. Well, something I find interesting about that is that the, the airports have 20-year master plans that they're required to do um, under the um, the process that privatised those airports. Um, they have a five-year immediate time frame and a 20-year horizon. I'm sure you would do the same thing from an internal planning perspective. But it, it seems they stop at the fence of the airport or the constraints of a port. Mm. And there's no, there's no sort of equal and opposite plan from a state perspective that provides the infrastructure that supports the capacity enhancements that's in, inside the gates of... Do you think that's a that lack of certainty about the 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 capacity that will support what you're intending to do inside the gate is a constraint on on you from a commercial perspective or the economy or? Yeah, I, I think uh, we've had some really good progress on that in New South Wales in recent years. In 2015, we released a 30-year master plan for the port. That's not something we were obliged to do. It's something we chose to do, where we set out what were the needs both within the port and outside the port in order to sustainably cater for trade growth into the future. Since that time, the state government has produced a transport plan and a freight and ports plan and the the Greater Sydney plan. And and a number of elements in those actually dovetail in with what we had um, put out in our 2015 plan. So I think there's a lot more uh, integration Mm. of state planning with port needs, and I think the state's quite attuned to that. The the challenge is always making sure that those strategies have longevity Mm. and making sure then that the funding goes with that. And you look at... um, you know, Port Botany being built 40 years ago, the government at the time had to relocate out of Sydney Harbour and say, we're going to set up a new port. You need vision to be able to do that. Mm. They did that. And so then you've got the vision of how do you make this an efficient supply chain. Then in, in the early 2000s, it was about having short haul rail and actually using rail to to service some of the market. And that, again, it's a long, it's a long play. Mm. These things take a long time. The port expansion took 10 years to get approvals and build and probably a bit more by the time it was operating 14 years by the time it was operating so these things have long time horizons and you need long-term strategies that can survive the test of time so speaking of uh vision and future um uh another area that you've been pretty outspoken about is um uh environmental sustainability of of shipping Mm -hmm. and uh shipping particularly recently has been 
getting a lot of attention for emissions from 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 the industry, which I think are outsized relative to the to economic contribution overall. Um, can you talk us through what that initiative is? Because I read a little bit about it. That there's a financial incentive that you offer to to uh, lower emitting ships and stuff like that. But can you talk us through first of all the details of what the initiative is and ha- and how it's been going as well? Well, shipping is the most sustainable form of transport for moving goods, particularly large volumes of goods. So we we're already starting off a off a good base. But there's always improvements that can be done in the shipping world. And even at the start of this year, internationally, the shipping regulations around sulfur emissions right. have tightened and it's now down to half a percent sulfur. So shipping is is getting more and more efficient and there's some vessels looking at LNG as fuel supplies. In terms of what we're doing at our port, uh, there is a, a World Ports Shipping Register that that actually has a score assigned to each of the ships that are in service uh, for those that wish to participate in that register. And that score reflects their carbon, nitrogen, sulfur, greenhouse gas emissions. Mm -hmm. And the more efficient they are, the higher the scoring that they get. Uh, There are 50-odd ports around the world, and and, uh, Port Botany and Port Kembla became the first ports in Australia to, and the only ports in Australia to date, to introduce this environmental ship incentive, that we call it. What it means is that we have a... um, a rate of financial uh, rebates or discounts for ships that come into our ports subject to what score they have on the World Port Shipping Register. So if they have higher emissions performance, then uh, they will get more of a rebate. If they don't have, if they're not registered or they don't, they below a certain threshold, they'll get no what kind incentive. Of, what kind of incentive are we talking about here? Like is it 1%, 100%, 50%, something in between? Look, I... I think it's different. It's different for different different lines, and it depends on how frequently the vessels call. What we've said is that our incentives alone are not going to necessarily swing the dial for for international lines to change which vessels call in the country. Right. But if other ports around the country come on board as well, then actually that will help to make it make that decision making process with the shipping lines so have you seen more convincing have you seen yet any kind of change in in composition of ships that are arriving so we've we've seen about 500 ships already arrive uh, and receive the incentive yeah which is great and we're getting more and more vessels registering for the incentive uh, all the time so uh, look we're seeing some good change there now what the shipping lines some of the key shipping lines have said is the benefit that they get from a saving uh, when they visit the ports they can use that money to invest in their environmental programs. Yep. And for them, it's a really important uh, encouragement for their their companies to actually continue to invest in environmental so it, improvements. It discount on the channel fee? Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a little tricky. So in Port Kembla, it's a discount on the navigation charges because right. we charge navigation. In Port Botany, we don't charge navigation. The state through the Port Authority of New South Wales charges that. So we don't, um, we, ours is essentially just a rebate back on wharfage. I wanted to just um, step back to probably an earlier part of the conversation. Um, you've been with the port for 19 years. Um, during that time, that's sort of the, the back end of the national competition policy type reforms. Um, the port as a, a corporate entity and now as a private entity. Uh, I, could you just reflect on the differences of, of what it... Um, what it means from an operational perspective and management perspective, et cetera, on the different ownership 
models that you've experienced at the port? Well, I think there's probably two key differences moving from state-owned corporation into into private. One is that uh, we we can form up a vision and the vision has longevity. So with our 2015 master plan, we've set that as our 30-year plan. Now, obviously, strategies change, but we have very much put that out publicly and said, this is our plan and our vision, and this is progressively what we're doing to achieve those objectives. And I would say over that, that last four years, we have progressively been going through and delivering on that plan. The other key thing is access to capital. So we've been able to invest in infrastructure that possibly under a state-owned model, you would struggle to get the funding to do. So um, we've been invested. The first investment that we did was a $30 million wharf investment in Port Kembla to complement what was then a new grain facility that was being built. Um, we, we think that it would have been more difficult under government ownership to actually get that, that funding. We've invested $250 million into Enfield as an intermodal and logistics hub. We've announced the first tranche of three sets of investment in rail, $120 million in the Patrick's Terminal to actually double the capacity of rail at Port Botany and then following on with Hutchison and DP World. In many ways, that access to capital, it seems counterintuitive because you think, well, governments have, you know, to, to some extent, unlimited capacity to borrow depending on what constraints they place on themselves. You as an entity with a, you know, a few large but nevertheless relatively small assets, um, your capacity to borrow would seem more constrained. So it's not so much a government's capacity to raise capital or willingness to do it under a different ownership model, is that fair? Well, it might also be, and I can't comment obviously on government's decision making, but it might be more around prioritisation. So for us, mm. our sole priority is is growing the efficiencies, the capacities, the capabilities of the ports to meet the trade needs and to grow the volumes through the port. And with government, they've got a whole suite of priorities that go across multiple sectors. So perhaps that might yeah, be okay. the, the, the change there. But certainly the investments we've been able to do, I think, have been able to be done more rapidly and um, under a strategic umbrella that has longevity. So it seems if I could capture it in one sentence, it, it feels like it's like a clarity of purpose that's derived from private ownership has, has driven yeah. a lot of the improvements. Yeah, clarity, clarity of purpose and um, clarity that that, that that strategy will be the strategy that we're following for, the, for a longer period of time. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Another aspect of... Um, of the, I guess, uh, an extension almost to that question is because there was a lot, there was a lot of uh, reforms to, to uh, operating models in the the nineties and two thousands that the been affected by uh, that affected the port. Um, a lot of You're talking about the waterfront dispute. No, specifically co corporatization, the, the the national competition policy that you just yeah. mentioned. Um, more recently, there's a lot of debate going on about uh, a kind of stalled uh, economic reform agenda. Um, and the ports have been at the forefront of that in a lot of lot of ways, particularly from uh, an IR sense. But also, there's a lot of ports have been doing a lot of automation earlier mm. than just about any other sector. Um, I guess, can you talk a little bit about how automation has uh, impacted the business? But also, do you see those? Do you see that stalled um, IR reform agenda playing out in your 
well, at least at least within the constraints of NSW ports. Well, I'm glad you made the point that uh, ports have been probably ahead of the curve in terms of automation, because I agree with that, and I don't think that's well recognised. And you can go back to 1993 in Rotterdam, where they've really had the first substantive automation of terminals. And then that's just progressively rolled out across the world to the point where we now have two semi-automated terminals at Botany. Uh, There's one almost fully automated terminal in Melbourne. So in Australia, we're now getting hybrid models or almost fully automated in the case of VICT in Melbourne. Um, And and look, automation is is probably um, in in a couple of areas. It's it's the equipment on the terminal so that actually you've got safer working conditions and you've got... That's a a really important point, by the way, that I don't think gets enough attention, that it's... um that automation is is not it's not all about saving costs although that is an important benefit but the the safety impact in ports is just incredible mm. for what, what what comes from automation is that, that that's fair to say i think it's fair to say it's it's much safer where it's being um, automated on the terminal and also the uh, as i understand it from from the stevedores the wear and tear on the equipment mm. is actually uh, less mm. as well so there's that element of of equipment Uh, longevity and maintenance also. It's not necessarily only about productivity. In fact, automation doesn't always lead to higher productivity, Mm -hmm. but it leads to more consistent productivity. Uh, So I think it is is an element of of those things, but there's also a huge amount of work going into uh, the the digital space as well, because there's been huge progress in that. We now have uh, truck booking systems. So you book a slot to come into the port so that there's we reduce the truck queues around the port because people know when they've got to come in and they've got to come in at a certain time, they get processed in a certain time and they leave. Same thing around you know, rail and all those technology pieces make a difference. And I actually think there's um, a huge way to go in the technology space and there's a number of players doing that. You've got Maersk with IBM, you've got other companies uh, working on what they call blockchain, but essentially some form of system whereby you can transfer data from a point of origin through to a point of destination and everybody can access that and Mm -hmm. customs can clear it and quarantine can clear it through that system. At the moment, a a container can have details manually entered about it 30-odd times Mm. from its point of origin to its point of destination. So you look at how much productivity you can free up by not having to do that through automated systems. And then you look at other things that are being trialled around the world. So I went and had a look at the remote towage uh, system that's being trialled by uh, Maersk and Switzer over in Copenhagen. And they've essentially got uh, captains of the, the tugs sitting on land in a sort of Star Trek type uh, bridge yeah. with, with screens all around and the tug is out on the water uh, and it's it's being remotely operated. So does that, if I'm, if I'm interpreting that right, is the, the level of automation or at least uh, productivity enhancing technology, is it so advanced in ports that you're almost post IR issues? Like it's, they're not, they're not really the concerns that are being raised quite frequently throughout the rest of the sector aren't really affecting you all that much? So I wouldn't say that it's resolved any of the, okay. that it's resolved the IR issues, but what it does do is it it just helps in terms of 
painting the picture around the fact that ports aren't really static in terms mm -hmm. of the way in which their models operate. They've moved from a very heavy labour-based operation when when goods were carried in boxes and parcels and slung onto ships in, in nets through to the containerization, which again improved safety. It improved um, safety of the goods as well. I think mm. it's worth reflecting on that technology and the impact it's had. Like container, there's an incredible book called The Box that I'm sure you've read that, that traces the impact of containerization on world trade. It, it might be one of the most impactful technologies. And it seems quite benign, yeah. like it's a box, but it's the same size and it's consistent around the world. It's only 50 years yeah. since the introduction of it. And it's just like a massive impact yeah. on <laughs> trade. Consider trying to get the world to adopt a global standard for almost anything, and mm. they have with, with containers. They've adopted a yeah. global standard that just has connected the world. We were not able to be that connected, particularly with Australia being so remote as we are now. Um, yeah. So it has revolutionised how we move goods and how we manufacture, and it, it's revolutionised everything. Well, if you think about that, just a number of different components that go into, say, a mobile phone. The capacity to have all of those things moving around the world in, and be able to track them at the right time in the right place to then be encapsulated on the phone and then put back on a ship to be shipped here. Mm. I did, it seems impossible that you could do that without containerization, yeah. I suspect. Well, interestingly, the mobile phone is, is one of those items which uh, the components of that travel the most around mm. the world to, in order to get to the phone. And uh, I say that because we, we recently partnered with the Australian Maritime Museum to deliver an exhibition called Container and it was a free public outdoor exhibition where people could walk in and out of containers and the, the six containers were all themed so that you got themes on ships, ports, cargo, oceans, uh, build. And then there was one last box which you didn't walk into but it had a glass frontage and it was called Things. And it was a mock-up of a small living room slash kitchen with a couch and a table and you know, um, lamp and all of that. And they, it was a very simple living room. It's nothing major by any, any stretch of the imagination. And they mapped out how far um, each of the items had travelled in mm -hmm. order to be put together and then delivered to the, the exhibition. And those items collectively had travelled two and a half times to the moon wow. in order to get into that box. And it's a very small living room. And the iPhone or the phone, yeah. the, the mobile phone, was one of the the most, um, had the most kilometres attached to it. So we wouldn't all have smartphones if it wasn't for containers and ports? I think they'd cost a lot more probably. Yeah. <laughs> We're uh, almost coming to time, Adrian. You want to ask your... Um... Well, that was actually really a nice moment to finish on then, wasn't it, about, you know, how the... The, the box and the port yeah. is responsible for my phone but we always finish on the same thing which is um i know you're an avid listener of our podcast so i'm expecting a good answer to this one um uh, marika kalfas what's your favorite type of infrastructure and why i had totally forgotten about this question until i listened to the last episode and went oh i'm gonna have to actually <laughs> think of something insightful to say um so my answer is that i i mean i just like big infrastructure and I love watching those videos on how they made the time lapse dams ones. and how they made things in the in the past as well uh, so anything that's that, that's big infrastructure is always fascinating I would have to say ports have got to be incredible when you think about building in water as well and when we did the port expansion mm. you've got 640 ton units 
that are built on land in precast yards that have to be placed into water. They're 20 metres high. You know, just the logistics of how that happens and then you backfill behind it. Um, so I think all of that's fascinating. But one of the areas with that expansion that actually was the most interesting and it's smaller in scale, and even the contractors building it thought it was really fascinating, was building ecological infrastructure. Mm. And we rehabilitated and created an estuary as part of that. Uh, those works. We had to build roosting islands for migratory shorebirds, transplant salt marsh and plant 250,000 seedlings, create tidal zones with mixed in with um, seagrass rack to try to create sort of benthic invertebrates in there. And I think that together with a whole piece of community infrastructure around pathways and boat ramps is is quite challenging mm. and it's quite challenging to get the regulators across it as well. And the, the construction uh, group really loved building it because it was just something really different. I think that's a really good callback to your training as an environmental engineer as well. So um, Marika, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a great chat. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks Marika. Well, that's it for today. Thanks as always to PwC Australia for their continued sponsorship of Inside Infrastructure. Please make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcast platform and leave us a rating. Or you can post a comment on LinkedIn. If you have any guest suggestions, then please feel free to shoot them through to either Ilya or I. We've certainly appreciated the messages we've been receiving so far. This episode was recorded and edited by Adam Stevens from TAG, PwC Australia's internal media agency. Research was conducted by Linda Bierschen, Brendan Pierce, and Michael Player. Mm-hmm.